Before we get into these verses, I want you to turn over to 2 Peter, 2 Peter, his second letter, chapter 3, page 1483 in your Bibles. The second chapter, the third chapter, excuse me, third chapter of 2 Peter. I don't know if I ever said that totally right. Third chapter of 2 Peter, beginning at the 14th verse. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 3. Because I want you to see here what the Apostle Peter had to say about what the Apostle Paul wrote. This is one of those few and rare places where one apostle is affirming the other apostle's writings as Scripture. It's, it's not all that often that one New Testament writer will quote another New Testament writer. New Testament writers quote Old Testament all the time. But uh, the only other place I can think of is when the Apostle Paul quotes directly the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke about the laborer being worthy of his wages. Now, I want you to watch closely, beginning at verse 14 of 2 Peter chapter 3, about what Peter says about Paul's letters. Verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Now watch this. Just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you. And also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Their own destruction. So I want to point out three things here very quickly. First of all, Paul's letters contained in the New Testament are the inspired word of God. Because Peter says, as in the rest of the scriptures, he includes Paul's work as scripture there. Paul's letters are holy writ, the scriptures, the word of God. And secondly, some of what Paul wrote in his letters, writes Peter, is hard to understand. And this certainly applies to our text in Romans chapter 5 that we're going to be looking at this morning. Now, believe me, if the Apostle Peter says that some of the things the Apostle Paul wrote are hard to understand, then it's what? Hard to understand. And the third thing I like to point out is that Peter writes that the untaught and the unstable people distort what Paul wrote, and it leads to their destruction. And all these things are certainly true of Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 17, that we'll be looking at this morning. Paul's letters to the Romans is God's holy word, inspired by God, given by God through the pen of the Apostle Paul. And also this section of scripture is among some of the most difficult portions to understand. It's like taking a PhD dissertation that's 300 pages long and boiling it down to 303 words here. In fact, it would make a very good conclusion to a dissertation, and it really boils down all the main points that we've seen in Paul's letter to the Romans so far. And now, because of the difficulty and hard-to-understand portions of this letter, this is one of the most controversial and debated portions of Scripture. If you read 10 commentaries on this section, you come away thinking, I, I think I heard at least 11 different points of view <laughs> about it. Now, as I was typing this portion of the message, I thought, well, maybe a little humor might be needed here before we get into these things that are, might be a little bit heavy. And I thought about the story of James Dobson, the, the story that he told about a little boy who was acting up in church because he was bored. 
The boy was talking constantly. His dad kept trying to get him to be quiet, to quiet him down. He was wiggling and squirming. He'd even stand up on the pew once in a while. And finally, dad had enough. And the dad stood up, threw the little boy over his shoulder, and started walking to the back of the sanctuary. And just as they got towards the back, you could hear the little boy saying, you all pray for me, you hear? <laughs> well, as we come to Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 12, you all pray for me. My first thought when I read what Peter said about those who distort Paul's words, I, I don't think I consider myself untaught and unstable, but nevertheless, anytime we open up God's word, we need God's Holy Spirit to give us understanding. So let's take a moment right now to pray and ask God to help us understand and apply these important and essential verses of Scripture. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word in the book of Romans this morning, I pray that you would give me the wisdom, give me the insight to communicate clearly and correctly what your spirit is saying to us, your church. Father, I ask that you'd open our minds, open our hearts, help each one of us to think clearly with a clear eye of insight. So as the Lord Jesus said, we would be full of light, full of your light. And for this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to handle Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21 with, with accuracy this morning. In clarity as a workman, not ashamed. And we're going to work through this passage carefully over the next two weeks. And actually, it's not a very difficult passage to outline Verses 12 through 14 of Romans chapter 5 speak of the death-dealing sin. Sin dealt death. On account of the sin brought by Adam, everyone dies. The death-dealing sin. And then in contrast, verses 15 through 17 tell us about the, the life-giving gift. The free gift of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Now that doesn't sound too tough, does it? And then in verses 18 through 21, Paul summarizes everything he said so far in the book of Romans. And at least for outline purposes, I've labeled it guilt versus grace. And that's the part that we'll look at next week. So we'll be looking at the death-dealing sin, the life-giving gift in our time this morning. And then we'll consider guilt versus grace next time. The outline doesn't sound too tough, really, especially since we're on the 29th message in Paul's letter to the Romans. We've already laid a careful foundation for these truths in God's Word. So please turn once again to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. First of all, we see the death-dealing sin beginning at the 12th verse. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. I want to note something in passing here, but a passing note, but it's really important. We see here Paul believed in the historicity of Adam, that Adam was a real person. He believed the story of the fall is recorded in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. 
that Adam was not a mythical figure invented by the author of Genesis to explain how allegorically sin entered into the human race. Because this is where so many people go astray to begin with. And when I say to begin with, beginning. That's the word Genesis means the word beginning. We've got to start at the beginning. Uh, several years ago, Jan audited a class, and the instructor began the class by asking something to the effect, how old were you when you discovered that Adam and Eve were not real people? And that the Garden of Eden was not a real place. Well, Jan immediately dropped that class. There was no truth to be learned. And we talked about this in Sunday school. You start with a false presupposition, a false place, then, you know, don't listen to that guy on TV. Don't listen to that person on the radio. There's really nothing to be learned when you start from a faulty presupposition. And, you know, one way I like to pose the question when it comes to the biblical characters and whether they lived or didn't live or, or if they're true or not is I just ask the question, what did Jesus think? What did Jesus think of the biblical characters like Noah and Jonah and Adam? What, what did Jesus make of the flood of Noah and the big fish that swallowed Jonah? Did Jesus believe those stories to be actually factually true? And did these people really live? Of course he believed that. In fact, Jesus compared the times of his coming again that all-important time when the heavens will open and Jesus will return, it's called the, the day of the Son of Man. Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, And just as it happened in the days of Noah, it'll be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. The words of Jesus. Jesus also compared his burial in the tomb to the experience of, of Jonah, didn't he? Remember that in Matthew chapter 12? Jesus said, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus even referred to Adam and Eve in Matthew chapter 19, where God created Adam and Eve as the first human beings. And Jesus said, quoting the Old Testament, God created them male and female. Jesus affirmed that these were real people that lived in real places and had real experiences. As you know, God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He gave them a strict commandment not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they disobeyed God, resulting in God banishing them from the garden and imposing a curse on the human race as a result of their sin. You remember that Eve ate first, but Adam was the one who was held accountable. Did you ever think of that? And it was by his sin that sin entered the entire human race. Now, why was Adam held accountable when Eve ate first? Ever wondered about that? And then she gave the fruit to Adam, and he ate. Why did God hold Adam accountable? It's because, simply to begin with, in God's economy in marriage, the husband is what? What is the role of the husband? The husband is the head over the wife. Well, well what is a head? You know, one of my favorite questions to ask couples when they're planning to get married, and they're, they're kind of, you know, how people are when they're in love, and... You know, and we'll be sitting and counseling, and I'd say, well, who's going to be boss in your home? Who's going to be the boss? 
You know, my dad used to joke about that all the time while I was growing up, and he said, Lorene's the boss. <laughs> and, you know, when you say that to a couple, as they're going to get married, they kind of smile, and they crack jokes. They, they might talk about how it worked in their house. And, and then I'll bail them out by saying, there's only one boss in the home, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's what the word Lord means, master, boss. So neither of you are going to be the boss in the home. Jesus is to be Lord in your home. But Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a head? Well, think of it as a department head. A department head in a business or a corporation or in a factory. The head is responsible and accountable for everything that happens in his or her department, right? If something goes wrong... And the boss comes down from the upstairs office to check it out. He talks to the department head. It's where the buck stops. And the head can't say, well, it's those stupid employees you gave me. <laughs> no, the head is fully responsible. It's the head who's accountable. I get tired of people getting in trouble and getting on the news. I take full responsibility. No, you don't. Because <laughs> if you did, you would suffer the consequences for that. And oh, by the way, Adam tried the same one about those stupid employees. Remember that? When the Lord showed up after Adam and Eve sinned, what did Adam say? The woman you gave me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. The woman you gave me, God bl or Adam blamed the woman, you gave me, Lord, he blamed God. Guilt transference all over the place. So Adam's second sin is that's recorded as not taking full responsibility and accountability as the head. In the marriage, in the family, and this is kind of sobering, guys, as husbands. God holds the husband accountable and responsible for everything that goes on in the family. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes to the home and says, Okay, how's it going, children, in your house, in your home, with your kids? You know, he comes to the husband. Now, that doesn't mean that God is going to hold the husband accountable for a wayward child, you know, or, you know, at least one where we had no ability or, or whatever. But he will hold the husband accountable and does for how, men, you apply God's word in your family and in your marriage and how you raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And I'm going to throw out a big theological term here when it comes to headship. The word head refers both to accountability, the idea of accountability, but also refers to source. You know, kind of how do things go down river? You know, because we talk about the headwaters of something. You know, the source, where it, where it comes from, and then how that is taken, you know, in, in, in the family and, and how they respond to that. Because I remember as a, as, a, as a young boy, you know, I traveled to... Uh, Oregon to the Oregon coast with my grandma and grandpa and when we were in Cottage Grove and visiting my aunt and uncle and um, I don't know where we went but our uncle took us up to a place you know it was up in the mountains beautiful country and there was just a steep sheer cliff of rock and out of that rock was gushing a mighty river it was, that was the source. That was the head. It just came like it's just coming out of nowhere. 
you know, and then it just goes down the river, just I'd seen similar river, the Salmon River in central Idaho, just all of a sudden there's a big winding river with rapids and all kinds of stuff, and it's just coming out of here. So head refers to source. It also refers to accountability. Now the term I'm going to throw out at you is federal head. Federal head. The word federal here means Adam represented all humankind. He's the federal head. Adam was the federal or representative head of the entire human race. Adam chose to sin, and all of us are considered guilty as well because he was our representative. And he was also the source of the one, he's the one that introduced sin into the world. And we see this in verse 12 of Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, gushed into the world, we could say that, and death through sin, as that torrent came down, and so death spread to all men because all sin. The crucial and most controversial phrase in Romans chapter 5, verse 12 is, what does it mean when he says, so death spread to all men because all sinned? Paul is saying when Adam sinned, we all sinned. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. When Adam sinned, every being to follow sinned. In other words, God appointed Adam as the representative head, the federal head of the human race. His sin involved the entire race and the entire human race to sin. And his sin was imputed or charged to everyone who was born after him. Because of Adam's sin, everybody who's born into this world is born guilty of sin before we ever committed our first willful sin. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners by virtue of our union with Adam. Now, the common reaction to this, that's not fair, blaming me for Adam's sin. Well, what are we going to do with that <laughs> accusation it's not fair. You know, it's always very dangerous to accuse the almighty sovereign of the universe of unfairness, <laughs> right? God determined to treat Adam as the representative head of the human race. It's certainly God's prerogative to do that. But also, we live with this kind of representation every day, don't we? If our political leaders declare war against another country, we go to war and some of our soldiers will be die, will ki be killed because of the action of our leaders, because they are, you know, there's a reason we call it the federal government. What they do, the decisions they make, it affects us all, whether it's a shooting war or whether it's a, what, trade war. You know, that's, that's their decision. Their decision was our decision because they represent us. A further response to the, un to the charge of unfairness is, do you think you would have done better than Adam? If you were in the same situation? Do you think you would have resisted temptation and lived a sinless life if, if you had been born without the effects and guilts of Adam's sin? It's not likely, is it? And finally, against the charge of unfairness, if it's not fair that Adam represented you when he sinned, neither is it fair that our federal head, Jesus Christ, represented you when he died on the cross. Do you see why I introduced that term, federal head? Because Jesus Christ is also our federal head when it comes to grace and salvation. Look at verse 12 again. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men 
because all sin. Death spread to all men because we are sinners. We know that is true because what? We all die. One out of one don't make it out of life, except for a couple of notable, notable exceptions in the, the Old Testament. God told Adam that he ate of the tree, he would die. And the Satan, Satan the serpent came along, oh, surely you will not die. But when Adam ate, he began to die physically. The cells in his body began the process of corruption and degeneration for the first time that eventually he would die his physical death. Everyone dies. I believe at that moment all creation began to die for the first, for the first time. You know, I think at that salutation at the bottom of the letters of a funeral home, eventually yours. <laughs> Adam, be, Adam began to die physically. Eve began to die physically. But also, Adam died spiritually at that very moment. He disobeyed God. The word death in Scripture means separation. Physical death is the separation of the body from the soul and the spirit. The body remains in the ground and the soul leaves. Spiritual death is the separation of the person from God. Separation. Upon disobeying God, Adam and Eve were immediately separated from God. They no longer enjoyed the immediate presence of God. They were separated from God. Everyone who is born into this world is born into a, a state of spiritual separation. And that's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. You must have the kind of life that Jesus gives because you're spiritually dead. When Adam sinned, he experienced spiritual separation from God that apart from the gift of eternal life would have resulted in Eternal separation from God. The Bible calls this the second death. There's the first death where we die physically. Dying physically is the first death. Eternal separation from God is the second death where people are cast into the lake of fire, the lake of fire that burns with brimstone, where they're eternally separated, eternally dead in that regard from God. So both physical and spiritual death entered into this world through Adam's original sin. In verses 13 and 14 of, of Romans chapter 5, Paul returns to the idea of the law and its relationship to the imputation of sin that he's been talking about. Verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. What does that mean? It's, it's not easy to, to follow the flow of thought here, but Paul seems to be arguing that the fact of universal death from the time until, from Adam until Moses gave the law, which was due to their individual sins, was not imputed to them because they weren't breaking any specific commandment given by the law, but rather their universal death was due to their identification with Adam in his original sin. But what does Paul mean when he adds in verse 14, even those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. What does Paul mean by that? It seems that Paul means that after the law was given by Moses, sinners violated the specific commands of God, even as Adam did. Did Adam have a specific command of God? Yes. Don't eat of that tree. He disobeyed. People who had the law had all the do's and don'ts, and they broke those. 
And so those who lived between Adam and Moses still sinned, but their sin was not imputed to them on account of breaking the law. Their sin didn't violate any specific commands, but their guilt was imputed because they all died because when Adam sinned, they had sin. You know, kind of heavy stuff there, but look at the rest of verse 14. Why does Paul add at this point that Adam is a type of him who is to come? A type of him who is to come, namely of Christ. Answer, Paul wants us to see the parallel here. Adam's descendants were all implicated in his sin, and they died. Even though they didn't violate specific commands as he did, because they were in Adam. When they sinned, when Adam sinned, they sinned. They were in Adam. In like manner, all of Christ's descendants born spiritually through the new birth are identified with Christ and are in Christ and are counted as righteous, not because they're individual deeds of righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness. That's what it means to be in Christ. And here we find a wonderful application to all this deep theological truth in God's word. What does Paul want us to know and understand at this point? And I like the way that John Piper explains this and applies it. He writes, this is the all-important parallel, speaking of in Christ or in Adam. He said, the deepest reason why death reigns over all is not because of our individual sins, but because of Adam's sin imputed to us. So the deepest reason eternal life reigns is not because of our individual deeds of righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness imputed to us by grace through faith. He goes on, oh, how much light this sheds on why Paul embarked on this paragraph at all. If you ever had a chance to really study in depth this paragraph, you'd wonder, why did Paul even write this stuff? So he writes, oh, how much light this sheds on why Paul embarked all on this paragraph at all. He did it for the sake of our faith and our assurance and our joy. He did it to underline the fact that our right standing with God and our freedom from condemnation is not based on our righteous acts but on Christ's righteous acts. And I want to add one more thought before we look at the life-giving gift a little bit. This comes from Pastor Stephen Cole. He wrote, Outside of Christ, the human race is still under the reign of death. As George Bernard Shaw rightly observed, the statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of one people die. We try to put this out of our minds, but then it hits someone close to us and realize. I'm going to die someplace or someday too. We try to preserve our bodies through exercise and health food. An AARP magazine perpetuates the myth by showing us old geezers who compete in triathlons as if they will live forever. But the fact is, those old geezers are going to die. Plastic surgery may allow us to leave a young-looking corpse, but it's still a corpse and contrary to popular mythology, death is not a natural cycle of the life cycle. Death is God's penalty for Adam's sin imposed on all his posterity. Death reigns if you are still in Adam. And then he asks the question, how do we escape the curse? That brings us to the life-giving gift, and we'll just touch on this a little bit today and look at it more in detail next week. Verse 15. Romans 5, but the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, 
Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. He uses that word, the many, oftentimes. In the Greek, it's the hoi polloi. You ever heard that? A big bunch of people are the hoi polloi. You know, all kinds of people. Literally means the many. Paul contrasts the devastating effects of Adam's transgression. The many died. The hoi polloi died. And he contrasts that with the glorious effects of God's free gift and grace, which abounds to the many, to the hoi polloi. In the first instance, the hoi polloi refers to the devastating effects of one man's sin on many, which in this case means the entire human race. It's like one little campfire that's left unattended, which starts a forest fire and destroys the entire forest. One man sinned, but many died. All died. All were wiped out. Now, in the second instance, with Christ, the hoi polloi doesn't refer to the whole human race, but only to those he says, who received the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. We see that in verse 17 of Romans chapter 5. For by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. The whole polloi when it comes to Christ refers just to those who receive the gift of righteousness, and eternal life through Christ. And he uses that phrase, much more, verse 17, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of, of righteousness. And verse 15, for by the, gra- the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And, and Paul piles up here words like grace and gift and abound to emphasize how wonderful the gift of God's salvation is provided freely to us at Christ's expense. It's an undeserved gift. It abounds to us through the grace of God and through the grace of Christ who are linked in verse 15. Much more did the grace of God. Returning to that uh, that. that that place that I'm not even sure where it's at, where the water was gushing out into a large river just coming out of the the mountainside. Remember what Jesus said? Living waters gushing out. I will give to them the the living waters. So I just want to ask a couple of questions as we kind of sum this up at this point. How much sin have you piled up? (laughs) How much sin have you piled up over the years? (laughs) A lot of stuff. Do you know God's grace is more abundant? God's grace is more abundant. How great is your guilt and debt? God's free gift and abounding grace is greater. Remember these words, marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mountain outpoured, There where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see his face. Will you this moment his grace receive? Shall we? 
Our Father, now as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord and celebrate that grace, 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 grace that is greater than all our sin. Father, as we partake of the elements this morning, Lord, I just thank you that because of your abounding grace, your grace that is greater, that uh, once we were in Adam, and we would suffer the eternal effects of our sin. We thank you that now we who believe we are in Christ. And we will enjoy all the effects of your abundant grace for all eternity. And for this we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.